behalf of the church, amen, beloved? As we continue in worship this morning, I want to look over the next few weeks into an uh, Old Testament narrative, uh, and that is the life of Joseph. The life of Joseph. To see not the moral, the moral character, I mean, we see that, that's evident, that's obvious, but that's not the focus. The focus is, is the gospel truth of God is promised through his son, Jesus Christ. So if you would, open to Exodus, I'm sorry, Genesis, chapter 50. And we're going to start this series from the back end. This morning's introduction. Next week, we'll begin the account where it starts, and that is chapter 37. So if you would, open to Genesis 50 and stand for the very brief reading of God's word this morning. Verse 20, Genesis 50. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray once again. Almighty God, we're helpless to see the truths of Scripture without the help of the Holy Spirit. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to see through the introduction of this very familiar passage that through the study of it, it would be a fresh visual aid for us to see through your living word the purposes of redemptive history and our part in this account. Guide us, direct us, enable us, and enable me to communicate this truth by the power of your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, The story, I'm quite sure most of you, if not all of you, um, are well familiar with. It's an amazing story set within a series of, of miniature little dramas. Joseph, as you know, is given a dream and foolishly tells the dream to his family, where as a result, he finds himself hated by his brothers. He eventually ends up being sold as a slave, brought down to Egypt, and in the long run becomes very successful, eventually living in the house of his master, he was shown favor and was made overseer of Potiphar's house. Then, of course, Potiphar's wife begins to seduce him, attempts to seduce him, and in his faithfulness, 
he discovers that there are times when faithfulness leads to immense loss. He's in prison because of deceit. He's locked up because of a lie. And again, he's raised up and out from prison to become prime minister of Egypt. Remember the story? It's a lengthy story of resentment, conspiracy, deceit, all of which is fueled by hatred and jealousy. Hatred and jealousy. Until the whole family finally is united together in Egypt where Joseph is able to teach them the lessons that he himself has first learned that God has taught him that in his life it is true that what they meant for evil, God meant for good. In other words, this is an account of God's sovereignty and his providence being worked out through his people. The account begins in chapter 37, which we'll begin next week. And it's a story that introduces a crisis. And this, beloved, is a crisis that will take 20 years to resolve. 20 years. A calamity that produces two decades of pain, suffering, bruising, and scarring. This is a story referred to as the greatest Old Testament illustration of Romans 8.28, which reads, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his what? Purpose. Key phrase, called according to his purpose, connected to the front end of that verse, and we know. In other words, this is an unshakable truth. All things. Work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. So now, as we begin to look at this section of Genesis, this morning we must pause and abridge the book of Genesis. Amen? To condense Genesis, if that's possible, before we get to chapter 37 next week. Okay, we go back and we know in Genesis 1, we read that the universe in which we live is the product of of the sovereign, personal God, who is distinct from his creation, rules over his creation, but nevertheless is most interested in his creation. Genesis 1. In Genesis 2, we see that man was made imago Dei, in the image of God. And given that responsibility is the covenant steward over God's creation, serving no doubt as a priest of God, if you will, in the garden temple of God. Genesis 2. And then in Genesis 3, man wickedly rebelled against God, sought to be equal with God, and the result was that sin introduced the reign of death in the world. 
And in those first three chapters alone, beloved, the foundation is laid for numerous doctrines for which we are very familiar. The first is the doctrine of cosmology, the doctrine of creation. Secondly is the doctrine of theology, doctrine of God. And then anthropology, the doctrine of man. Homardiology, the doctrine of sin. Soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. Christology, the doctrine of Christ. Pneumatology, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And eschatology, the doctrine of last things. All in the first three chapters of Genesis. In Genesis 4, the sin of man rises up to kill the very image of God. And we see there the first recorded murder. But nevertheless, God had a plan of redemption and he began a line of hope through the seed of the woman. And we see immediately the path towards that seed. And that seed being none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. The path begins through the persons of Abel and then Seth replacing Abel. And so redemption begins to build in the book of Genesis. This is what we want to see. Redemption begins to build in Genesis 3. Immediately after the fall. In Genesis 6 through 9, we learn that despite the fact of man's rebellion, despite the fact of widespread depravity, God still enforces moral order in his universe. God brings judgment against wickedness by way of a flood, a worldwide flood, all the while preserving a people unto himself. So in the midst of universal cataclysmic judgment, God chooses eight people. And wipes everything else and everybody else out. And then he enters into covenant relationship with a succession of heads of families with a view of bringing blessing upon the whole fallen world. This is sovereign God in action. And then as we jump forward to chapter 12 of Genesis, we see the most crucial event in the entire Bible that occurs between the fall of Adam and the birth of Christ, and that is the call of Abraham. A call that sets off the, entire, the entirety of the rest of the Bible. So we see this story. Abraham, from Genesis 15 to 24, as Abraham and Isaac and then their successors begin to carry out the very promises of God. God's covenant promises are passed down from one generation to another, but we see over and over that it's not necessarily through the firstborn sons. The promise is from Abraham to Isaac, not Ishmael. The promise is from Isaac to Jacob, not Esau. From Jacob to Joseph, not to Reuben. Over and over again, God shows his electing choice always supersedes what would be the natural choice of men. 
Did we not see this in Romans? So time and again, God's covenant succession is passed on. And then when we finally get to Genesis 37, we see God providentially ordering all things for the sake of his purposes. All along the way, God promises them descendants. He promises them land. He promises them a nation, blessing, and a spiritual stewardship. but not in a way that we would draw up if we were the author of the scenario. Not in all. <laughs> Nothing like what we would draw up. And then in chapters 37 to 50, we then see the detail of the life of Joseph. And as we study our way through this over the next few weeks, it's important that we see at least two things about this particular section of Genesis. The first is the story tells us how Israel wound up in Egypt. That's number one. How Israel ends up in Egypt. If you remember back in Genesis 15, verses 13 and 14, God had already told Abraham that his descendants would sojourn in the land of Egypt, that they would be enslaved for 400 years, but that they would come out with great possessions. So this part of Genesis tells us how these men who were sojourning here in Canaan end up sojourning in Egypt, being oppressed, and then coming out once again as sojourners. That's the first thing. The second thing that we want to see through this account the Joseph account, is that this passage teaches us how the promises of God in Genesis 12, that promise to Abraham, how it would be fulfilled. In other words, how Abraham would become a great nation. For through him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. We see how Abraham's seed went from being a great family a tribe, a clan, to being a nation. And so this section of Genesis sets up everything that happens in the first five books of the Bible. That's why it's key for our understanding. And through this account, we see crooked paths. Amen? If you're familiar with it, we see crooked paths cloaked in Providence, cloaked in providence. From the original promise of God given to Abraham with regard to God's plan of redemption, God intends, as he always does, to keep his people on the move, right? Not only physically, but spiritually. Are we not called to run the race with endurance, this race that is set before us? That we are pilgrims, that we are sojourners, running the grand redemptive relay race, if you will, from Genesis 3 right up to our day, even when the path is unexpected. It's the same race. From Genesis right into this present age. What did Paul write to Timothy? Do you remember? 
Second Timothy 2, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So this morning, as we prepare by way of this introduction, we go all the way back to the generation of Jacob, the father of Joseph. And at that point of the relay race, we see the anchor leg, the anchor leg of the patriarchs ready to run this patriarchal last leg, and he drops the baton. Right? He drops the baton. The reality is, though, that Jacob, he's not really running this leg. He's actually what? Limping. He's limping. Is a result of having wrestled with God back in Genesis 32. You remember that account? In Genesis 32, he wrestles all night with God. And having lived a life of deception... You know, a a deceiver, a manipulator, a liar. The Lord asks him, what is your name? Because years earlier, he fooled his father. And he said, it is I, your son Esau. It's not because God didn't know his name. God, by way of the Holy Spirit and the scriptures, is here signifying a breaking point to his deceptive ways. This is called sanctification. (laughs) He lied to his own father, identifying himself as brother Esau. Now he says, I am Jacob. And it's there that God changes his name. He says, you shall no longer be called Jacob, but you shall now be called Israel. And it's at that place that he blesses Jacob. So if you're going to talk about a bad first step in any journey, this account will challenge any other. The nature of God's people, again, is that they are sojourners. They are journeymen. From the garden, Adam and Eve were forced out of the garden and put on the move by God. Noah and his family are forced out of their homes, to say the least, amen? They're forced out, and they're put on the move by God. And again, the picture is God's plan of redemption. From the fall to a new heaven and a new earth. It's called covenant theology. Abraham and Sarah, they're called up and out of their land. And they go. Isaac and Rebecca on the move. Jacob, at this point, has sojourned much of his life, and he's still not done. He himself will end up in Egypt. So here, Jacob's sons, I should say his son at this point, his son Joseph, does end up in Egypt, and that is how the other sons end up there as well. It's through this account. And all of this, going back to Genesis, beloved, begins the horseshoed shape of redemptive history. From the garden, back to a new garden, a new heaven, and a new earth. So we see these generational movements towards the ultimate redeemed 
Eden, where we read in Revelation 22, the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flows from the throne of God, and the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. That's where we will be one day. But when we get to this point in redemptive history, that is Jacob and his sons, it seems as though this last leg of the patriarchal generations won't be run. Now, we know the end of the story. But if we can approach it beginning next week, just on the surface, we see that these runners are less than exemplary. Amen? They're very poor examples. But we're not looking for examples. Right? You see, the significance of these men is all tied up in the faithfulness of God and his promises. That's the point. Because the Bible itself is not necessarily a series of character studies. Right? Daniel, the hero. Joseph, the hero. These are great men to, to look at their lives and, and see the Christ-like character. And any Christ-like character that we find is most certainly notable, amen? And therefore most certainly applicable. But it's not, that's, these are not, this is not the primary purpose of these narratives. The main point of the story is like the rest of the Bible. It's all about sin and redemption. Sin and redemption. As I said earlier, this journey, this dilemma, this crisis will take 20 years to unfold. This is according to the sovereign purposes of God. The result of which is salvation, not only for the characters in the narrative, but also, as we shall see, ultimately salvation for us as well. That's why the whole Bible is vital for our understanding, from Genesis to Revelation. We look at this as one dynamic, glorious story. The ultimate experience of salvation is not here. The ultimate experience of our salvation is not on this present earth. This is an earthly journey that is not merely about the here and now, but is ultimately completed, as we just read, in a new heaven and a new earth that are tied together because of the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. And these are the paths leading up to that glorious finished work. You know, you think about being on the move, sojourners. Think about this. Even Joseph and Mary were forced to flee Bethlehem. To go where? To Egypt. To Egypt. Taking the same journey as their forebears had taken. On the move. And physically speaking, they would journey to Egypt, but spiritually speaking, the journey wouldn't be completed until the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus to the right hand of the Father. 
So this, this journey is expected. Going back to Jacob. Going back to Joseph. It's expected. But the path that gets Joseph down there is indeed unexpected. Is that fair to say? It's, it's most certainly unexpected. Unexpected by na- man, but ordained by God. Ordained by God. So if you're to look at this account alone, you cannot imagine a more sinful, stupid, sorrowful situation as we will see in the coming weeks. And by drawing in on the life of Joseph here in this account, we cannot forget, and here it is again, his significance in connection to the Abrahamic covenant. We can't separate these. They're all tied together. Which teaches you this. Once you really begin to see the people of God... (laughs) you truly begin to understand the grace of God. Just look around. Do you look forward, look behind you, look left, look right, and then when you get out, go look in the mirror. (laughs) I mean, how far into God's word do we have to read before we realize that his call of us is not based on anything commendable within us? Zilch. It's solely by grace according to his divine purpose. Now, as the Joseph story ends, and that's where we are this morning in this introduction, he's prime minister of Egypt. And what we're going to witness through the account is we're going to see his maturity by way of being brought low, having been broken, having been crushed, having been scarred, that through this crisis he's lifted up. God exalts him. And he'll take the dream that Pharaoh has, and here's something interesting. He listens to Pharaoh's dream by the time he's down in Egypt. He meditates on it. He prayerfully considers it and develops a seven-year plan that saves A nation, a people, in the covenant and out of the covenant, as a matter of fact. But as a boy, he was immature. As a boy, he was annoying. As a boy, he was overeager, saying to his family, hey, I had a dream. And guess what? Y'all going to be bowing down to me. the folly of the teenage years of our lives. The folly. The immature, impatient boy of 17 will become a man of fortitude. But not without being crushed. He'll become a man of godly dependence. He'll become a man of wisdom. All by way of God's providence, which is according to his Sovereignty. This haughty, prideful, privileged young man who walked so proud and talked so loud, God marvelously humbles. It's amazing. To where in the end, he showers his brothers with grace. 
mercy. Who had conspired against him 20 years earlier? Who hated him? And their hatred, as we will see, grows, seething hatred, lies, deception, conspiracy, jealousy, murderous hearts. And by the time they end up here, the sanctifying maturity of Almighty God through one individual, if you just look at verse 19 of chapter 50. But Joseph said to them, do not fear. Am I in the place of God? You get that? Am I in the place of God? He was most certainly in the place of power, amen? Do not fear, for I am I in the place of God? In other words, God is sovereign, brothers, not me. God is the sovereign, not I. The most prominent feature of the final chapters of Genesis is God's sovereign reign in and over the story and the life of Joseph. He is no less sovereign over you or your life or your situations. No less sovereign. So God tells both Joseph and Pharaoh, by the time he gets there, something about the future. Joseph receives a dream that he boasts about when he's young. Pharaoh receives a dream. Both of those dreams speak about the future. Why? Because God ordained the future. He gives them the dream. They come to pass. And this shows us that God ordains the end as well as the means to the end. No less true of our lives. He planned for Joseph. Now, don't miss this. He planned for Joseph to irritate his brothers. To the point that they sell him off. Ordained. It means planned. He planned for him to end up in Pharaoh's house. To be falsely accused. To be imprisoned. And then to become known as the interpreter of dreams. That, you know, the young guy locked up. Yeah, he interprets dreams. He's brought out, he's lifted up, all of which is according to God's preordained plan. Beautiful account. Scary sometimes, isn't it? Isn't it? Did I ever tell you the story about R.C. Sproul and James Boyce? They used to travel together, speak together before James Boyce went to heaven. And they would get on a plane. R.C. Sproul admits to being afraid of flying. To which James Boyce said one day, R.C., we're preachers of the sovereignty of God. To which R.C. said, exactly. (laughs) That's what frightens me. Because I know God, just because of my sin, has every right to plummet this thing, to crash this thing into the, the hillside or the mountains or the ocean for that matter. Just because of me and my sin, even as a forgiven sinner. But hopefully is we work our way through the account. Instead of fearing the sovereignty of God, we can rest in it. This brief introduction to the narrative account of Joseph serves as a mini-narrative to the meta-narrative or the grand narrative of God's 
redemptive activity in and through the lives of his people from Genesis to the end. And you're part of that people. Where through it all we see that God scars in order to save. Those scars most visible where? And his son. He scars in order to save. Now, many of you here this morning are able to look at incidents or experiences through your lives, challenges, struggles that have come into your family, uh, struggles that you have been part of in, in a local church, you know, where, where you've been connected or even directly involved. We all have these, amen? And you may not understand at the moment why. Why these things? Why these circumstances? But only later on, and not always here, in the here and now, we can see the wisdom of the divine investment of a sovereign God who functions providentially in and through our lives. Amen? And you can see on this end of it, which prepares you to be a better minister, which prepares you and me to be better servants, and to better see by faith rather than by sight. Now, some may see when we get through this account, as we work our way through this, you may say within yourself, you may say out loud, well, then that means that God planned or caused the evil of these brothers. Somebody will, inevitably, because we're only finite human beings, amen? We're only finite. We witness the sovereignty and the providence of God being worked out. This is what we must not forget. And here's what sovereignty is. Sovereignty, in a nutshell, addresses God's authority and rule over his creation. That he governs it. He's sovereign over it. And then providence addresses the manner in which he does it. Daily happenings, his provisions. With regard to the providence of God, one theologian writes this, and I think it's very helpful. Notice. We may define God's providence as follows. God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that he, number one, keeps them existing and maintaining their properties with which he created them. Number two, cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. And number three, directs them to fulfill his purposes. End quote. Fabulous statement. Now, some believers wrestle with God's sovereignty, and they go so far as to say, now we hear this with unbelievers all the time, but sometimes we can fall into this as well. God is not good. How can he be good if he lets evil exist like this, especially when it enters our lives? Or they'll say he's not fair. But anytime we say God is not good, or we're tempted to say that he's not fair, never put fair and God together in the same sentence. Because we can't even get outside of our own sin to ask this question, how or why. Amen? We can't even get outside of our own sin to understand the purposes of God according to his sovereignty and providence. We're still sinners, and sin blinds our eyes. It blinds our understanding, even though we're redeemed people. 
That's why we're always encouraged to live by and look by what? Faith. Encouraging one another along the way. There's a pastor who tells the story of a discussion he had with a young woman. Her name was Nancy, a believer, a fine, godly woman who was wrestling with the doctrine of hell. Wrestling because she couldn't understand how a good and loving God could be associated with eternal, eternal conscious suffering torment. And there were a lot of reasons for her question. The main one, her main concern as a Christian, was that someone she dearly loved was not a Christian. And that was her daddy, her father. So this, per- this question was very personal. This wasn't some mere philosophical speculation or conversation. So the pastor said, as we talked about it, I saw I was getting nowhere. And towards the end of the conversation, I said, let me ask you a question, Nancy. Do you think that God is sovereign and good? To which she answered, yes, I do. I believe that. The Bible teaches that. And then I said, has your experience been that God is good to you? To which she answered, yes. He saved me and I didn't deserve to be saved. I know that God is good. The pastor said, Nancy, are you a sinner? Yes, I am. I sin every day, said Nancy. So can I rephrase your question then? You're worried that it is wrong for there to be a hell because of eternal conscious suffering. You believe that God is sovereign and good. You acknowledge that you are not good and that you do things that are wrong every day. But you who do things that are wrong every day, are worried that God would do something wrong? Am I understanding you? And she stepped back and she smiled and she said, it's kind of stupid, isn't it? To which the pastor replied, no, Nancy. All of us think like that. All of us. True? Very true. God is sovereign over nations, he's sovereign over nature, he's sovereign over me, he's sovereign over you, and by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he's shown himself to be sovereign over death, the sovereign king and ruler of the universe. So we, beloved, as we work our way through this, hopefully we'll grow to know that we can trust him. Amen? You can trust him with your life. You can trust him with your marriage. You can trust him with your children, their relationship to you and yours to them. Whether they believe or not, at this point, we can trust him, amen? I heard Sinclair Ferguson back in October say this. Quote, our God is in the business of long-term investments with long-term dividends. And we, therefore, can trust him. And the reason we can trust him is because not only has he done this in the life of Joseph, that was his context, but he has planted at the very center of history the guarantee that he's able to do this, he does do this, and he will do this. End quote. In other words, his plan is perfect and will be perfectly carried out. 
If you're here this morning and you do not know God by faith in Jesus Christ, again, if you're here this morning and you do not know God by faith in Jesus Christ, know this, you may be able to temporarily ignore him, but you can never permanently avoid him. He is the sovereign, but you can know him if you believe his words and obey his gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ, that you're a sinner, that's the bad news. Here comes the good news. Though you can't make yourself right before God, you are impotent to do so. He sent his son to do it in the place of those who will believe. Not only to live the perfect life, but to die. You heard the word propitiation earlier in the message? To satisfy the wrath of God against sin and the sinner. And you can know him by repenting and believing in him. Because he breaks in order to heal. He scars in order to save. He brings people low in order to exalt them. Just like Joseph, Jacob, Isaac, Abraham, and every other redeemed saint throughout redemptive history. Including you this, this morning. So I have a question for you, Christian, as we close up this morning and prepare for the Lord's table. Question. Question of thought as you prepare your hearts for the communion table this morning. Are Christians to be broken or triumphant? Think about it. Are they to be broken or triumphant? Listen to Hosea 6. He has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down that he may bind us up. You see that? So the answer is both, isn't it? The answer is both. But it's very important that we are clear on what is meant by that. So listen to this. Listen to these thoughts as we prepare ourselves for the table. If by broken, we mean perpetually discouraged, downcast, dismal, depressed, ever grieving over our sin, then no. Then no. If by broken we mean, we mean repentant, unassuming, patently aware of our weaknesses, able to laugh at ourselves. You want to see someone laugh at themselves? Come on over to my house sometime. Of sober judgment, sensitive to the depths of our sin, the sin that is still within us, then yes, we're to be broken. Are we to be triumphant? If by triumphant we mean self-assured, superficial, dull-witted about our personal weaknesses, if we're beyond correction... If we're self-confident, quick to diagnose others' weaknesses and exalt our strengths, self-exhibition, 
parading our gifts, that kind of triumphalism, no. No. But if by triumphant we mean confidence in the purposes of God, in his word, through weak disciples, that's where we begin. Confidence in the word of God. Boldness that's in harmony, in harmony with, with the outrageous claims of Scripture. And they're outrageous to a lost and dying world, are they not? But to be confident in that, submitting ourselves to God in light of Christ's victory, persistent in reminding ourselves that Christ has destroyed the power of Satan's accusations against you. If we want to talk about triumphalism like that, you know, a, a person, a people who take risks not to seek greater reputation, but fixated on the face of God by faith, then yes. Yes. Triumphant. Broken and triumphant. And that's how we come to the table. Because brokenness without triumph is a gloom and doom perspective that emphasizes the fall to the neglect of redemption. Crucifixion to the exempt of resurrection. Along with, along with this, an unrealized eschatology. Right? The already and the not yet. When he came, he established his kingdom. Amen. You're part of the kingdom as kingdom children. But triumph without brokenness is an ignorance that emphasizes redemption to the neglect of the fall, resurrection to the neglect of, cru the neglect of crucifixion, along with an overrealized eschatology. Do we see this, beloved? We must see this. So the gospel gives us and is the only resource where brokenness is not downplayed, it's not overlooked, but is overlaid with unspeakable glory. Overlaid with triumphalism. So brokenness and triumph, they're not in competition to one another, but they're tied together, overlaid, triumph over brokenness through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? which ties the entire Bible together is one redemptive story. This is what we want to see as we enter into the story of Joseph. Beloved, you may not, we may not understand certain things that happen to us, things you're thinking about perhaps right now, but we will understand eventually. It may not even be here that we understand. Joseph was finally able to tell his brothers, to, to, to paraphrase, you purpose to destroy me. You purpose to destroy me, but God purposed it for good. Their destructive ways, he purposed for good to save his God has purposed to save us, and to do so, he did not spare his son. He scarred him in order to save us. He broke him 
in, in order to lift us up, but not without lifting him up first. Raised from the grave, enthroned at the right hand of the Father. Will he not give us all things? Amen? Because God is with us, as we will see, just as he was with Joseph. Every step of the way. We're going to approach the Lord's table this morning. And, and by the way, the table, friends, is only for those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, who profess him by faith, who trust and believe in him, and have been joined to his body. That is the one true church. And as we do, we want to approach by confessing our faith together. As you open your hymnal to number 716. Thank you. In the Apostles' Creed. As you open there, if you would please stand. 716. the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, what do we believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into Hades. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to ask the men to come forward and serve us this morning at the Lord's table.
For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. First Corinthians chapter 11. The Apostle Paul gives these words whereby we institute the Lord's Supper. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, Take eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake together. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do, as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. Let's partake. The bread that we break, the cup that we drink, is the communion of the body of Christ and the blood of Christ his life, his death, in our place. For in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Father, we thank you and we praise you for this morning's worship. We thank you for the table, the gospel made visible, as recipients of grace. We praise and thank you for your goodness and your kindness and your mercy and the truths throughout Scripture shown to us that your one plan of redemption was carried out and continues to be carried out by way of the finished work of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, help us in our weakness. Lift us up that we may glorify you, whatever your providence may bring about according to your sovereignty. For it's the name of your son we pray. Bless your dear people today, I ask. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand